Welcome to From the Producer's Office, a series of informal podcasts with Opera Holland Park's Director of Opera, James Clutton. In conversation with creatives and collaborators, we explore the process of putting opera on stage and how the artists involved approach their craft. Hello, welcome to From the Producer's Office. I'm James Clutton, Director of Opera, Opera Holland Park. It's from the producer's home office at the moment. Uh, it's June 2020 and we all know what that means. But I'm working from home and doing uh, these podcasts on Zoom. And today I've got with me a great friend, a great guest to have. I'm thrilled he's with us today, Mr. Jonathan Dove. Hi, Jonathan. Hi. How are you? Pretty good. Uh, lockdown has been a good time for writing music. It's a terrible time for the arts in general. Um, yeah. The future is anyone's guess right now. Mm. Uh, but actually a little quiet time at home has worked well for me just trying to catch up with all the pieces I promised to write. <laughs> Excellent and and just on a personal thing with you because um, I know a few writers and composers and that you know you, you, people like yourselves artists like yourself you used to work in a home on your own so is that that hasn't been too much of a jump for you or has it been at home all the time? It, it's been exactly the same as usual except without the travel. Uh, so, I mean, it was it was tantalising and sometimes heartbreaking that there were quite a few productions of operas of mine that were all about to happen around the world. Really, and it got pulled, and, and particularly there was there was the Monster in the Maze, this big community opera, was about to open in Barcelona, and so those children had been rehearsing for months, oh. and they were ready. You know, they were ready. Uh, there was a Mansfield Park at the Royal Northern, which was again it was like a week before they were going to open. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, it was, they were on, everyone on peak form, the production, I've seen the designs, it looked amazing. No, Stephen Barlow directing that, was it? Yes, yes, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it, it, was, it was just, a, a, it was a beautiful and unusual production. Um, mm-hmm. And there, were more, there, there would have been a monster in the maze about now in Amsterdam and another one that was going to be one at the Grange. Wow. Uh, I, hope, I hope, you know, many of these things will happen eventually. Yeah. I think, right, that's the thing. I think it's just very diff- difficult and different for everyone to have any real vision of what the future is, even in the, even the very near future at the moment, because uh, sometimes next week feels quite a long time away when you're planning at the moment. So it's the, anyway, let's leave today for a moment and, and go right, right, right back for you. Um, uh, so did you come from a musical family, Jonathan? Well, uh, up to a point, my mother was very musical, but she was a lovely pianist. Uh, both my parents are architects and indeed my brother and sister ended up being architects as well oh, really? and my sister married an architect so <laughs> architecture broadly won um, but um, my mother did say that she had to make a choice between uh, architecture and music and so when I was very small in the evenings uh, after the children were in bed I would hear just as I was drifting off to sleep I would hear my mother playing the piano in the distance uh, which might be Handel's Largo or a bit right. of Oklahoma or right. Clare and, and then, then the next day I would go to the piano and I would try and play those things. So right. I started off all copying copying her. Um, and, and also uh, my parents are both involved in designing the, the choir loft in our local church, right. uh, which I then sang in and then went on to play the organ in. When I was 12, I became the organist. <laughs> Did you really? <laughs> but I was quite tall, so I could already reach the pedal. So <laughs> that's fantastic. So it was really young that you started taking on music, and obviously with that background with your mother, you know, it was it was encouraged at home. Music was encouraged by you. Did you take formal lessons f- from a very young age? Uh, yes, quite well. I, at primary school, I was learning piano, um, 
and I started on violin. We found an old violin in my granddad's loft, actually. And I'd, and I'd seen children in an open day playing violin. And it, I thought, well, how hard can it be? They're just moving this bit of wood up across the string. <laughs> I had no idea that it was just the hardest instrument to start with. Um, but then I was incredibly lucky. Uh, the year that I went to secondary school was the, either the first or the second year of the Inner London Education Authority's Centre for Young Musicians. Right. So throughout my secondary school, every Saturday, I got an hour of piano, an hour of violin, or just later viola, an hour of theory, general musicianship. Uh, there would be a recital at lunchtime, and in the afternoons, everyone played in ensembles. So I was playing wow. in a string orchestra. And then in the holidays, um, I played viola in the, in the London School's training orchestra, first of all, and then I graduated to the London School's symphony orchestra when I was 14, I think. And the first... I think it was the first course was we did Marla one uh, under Simon Rattle, who was then 19. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. So, so actually it was orchestral music was really in the foreground uh, that, at that point. Mm. Um, and singing was more about choral singing for me. And I, I was, I sang in the choir at school. I had quite a good treble. I, I remember singing the P.A. Yezu in 4A Requiem. Um, which I thought I did re really well, although a friend later said I was just very slightly flat all the way through, <laughs> which is probably... Uh, <laughs> did they go on to be a critic? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. Um, that. I mean, but that that paints an incredible picture of music education and encouragement in this country or this city uh, at, at that time, isn't it? It's just yeah, really weird. Yeah, it all felt free. I mean, obviously, you know, taxes are involved, but, but yeah. uh, it was free at the point of use. Yeah. And well, I, I don't I don't can't imagine who could have afforded to have that level of education for their no. teenage children then. Yeah. Incredible. That's a really, really wonderful. Um, and was there a moment, do you think, where you you first thought about music as or oh, that could be a job or, or was it a very gradual sort of uh, bit by bit? Well, I, I don't think I ever really thought in terms of jobs, but it certainly I thought of it as a life. Um, mm -hmm. Would it always just seem it was just the most exciting thing, and I suppose at some point, um, I, I mean, I did have fantasies about being a concert pianist, mm -hmm. and I, not that I ever really practiced <laughs> that much, <laughs> but I could do a good impression of somebody who could play Ratman and Nosek and and so I more or less destroyed our piano at home, trying to make it as loud as the organ um, or as loud as an orchestra. <laughs> and and sometimes and I and I just played all the time, uh, you know. Which you know, my parents designed us this beautiful open plan house, and so to have somebody playing the piano very loudly in an open plan house, <laughs> and to have and to remain alive after <laughs> several years of doing that, is a great testament to the extraordinary humanity of my family. <laughs> How long suffering now? Brilliant. And uh, I might have this wrong, but I think it's right. But you, professionally then as a, as a musician, did you start as a rep repetitor? Yeah, that was pretty soon after university. Um, I, yeah, I'd done some odd jobs and then I'd gone around the world a little bit and then I ran out of money and I phoned up, well, I can say that it was Jeremy Sams, you know, one yeah, Jeremy, yeah. translator. In those days, very busy as a composer and as a pianist and and I said Jeremy have you got any piano playing work going because I'm just I'm, I'm broke and he said go and play for Handel Opera on Monday morning um, <laughs> which I did <laughs> and that was like the doors of opera opened for me then because I, I, I at that point 
I'd seen very little opera and I, you know, friends of mine who direct operas often say that because it was because they saw Dido and Aeneas when they were seven and, yeah. you know, I didn't have a conversion experience at that age at all. I, I mean, I can, I think I, I can remember going to Iolanthe, Hansel and Gretel and Der Rosenkavalier by the mm -hmm. time I got to university. Right. That was it. Um, and it was a fairly random collection. <laughs> and then it's a good uh, season, though. Someone should <laughs> program that as a season. <laughs> and then at university, I remember Guildhall opera productions arriving, um, and there was Rigoletto, which I remember. I didn't at that point. I didn't get Verdi. Mm -hmm. uh, it was later that Verdi suddenly hit me mm -hmm. between the eyes. But at that point, it, I, it to me it seemed a bit like kind of circus music. I just didn't. I didn't get the uh the energy of it the drama of it uh but curiously i think it was the same year the Guildhall opera uh, production was uh cozy fun tutte and that right. that suddenly that was the first mozart opera and it remains my favorite right okay. it's possibly one of the hardest to successfully stage Indeed. but Indeed. um just the the ensembles the harmonies uh i yeah. i absolutely fell in love with that um, and so, so playing the piano for Handel Opera, and as I re remember it, it was James Bowman and Paul Esward were singing a duet, and I was playing the piano. I thought, I can't believe I'm getting paid to have this experience of hearing these incredible voices. Yeah. Uh, and so that was all I wanted to do for 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 quite a while because I couldn't believe that you could have this much fun and that so much excitement and. Uh, and it's also, a really great thing. Don't you think that a lot of people, I speak to a lot of people on this podcast and of course it ended up being job or it's what you, it's your livelihoods, but um, it really is a vocational um, career to so many people that they, they wanted to do it so much and, and it came as a job or a lifestyle second to that. They just wanted to do it. You know, it goes across so many people. Yeah. And, and, and repetitoring was the, was the big thing in my 20s, but I was also, I was playing the piano for accompanying singers in uh, restaurants and touring hospitals with live music now um, and doing bits of arrangements. I also, I played the piano in the pit for On Your Toes uh, one night a week until I got the sack. Because um, I, I was in fact a little bit too dreamy to be a really a, a, a jobbing musician. So he wasn't on your toes on that particular point. <laughs> I was very much on the back foot. I, I kind of, I would drift off a bit and, uh, you know, think, oh, but what, what would it be like if it went this way? And, or, you know, it's fatal things to be thinking. <laughs> Fantastic. So let's, let's roll on because there's so much to get through. I want to get through and um, we'll come back to this uh, twice in, in the next little bit of chat. But um, big, big change for you then. Flight at Glyndebourne commissioned 1998 on i don't know how long before that they commissioned it um w was that something you were pitching to them or did they approach you or how did that come about at, at that time the uh, the commission for flight was in a way it was a culmination of a relationship which now probably it would have been you i would have been composer in association um because it was um about 10 years in which i did a whole series of projects for Glyndebourne. Uh, the first was a, so it was three community operas. Mm -hmm. um, so the end of, uh, gosh, well, well, so I went to Glyndebourne as a repetitor and right. uh, an assistant chorus master. Okay. Uh, and Katie Tell um, had started the outreach department not many years before that, I think. 
and I'd had some experience of doing various kinds of outreach work and this led to being involved with Glyndebourne outreach mm-hmm. um, and so they had been thinking about doing some something for schools commissioning an opera for as I remember it it was two schools in Rye and I had just reorchestrated West Side Story for Graham Vick's production in right. Um, a disused cotton mill in Bradford with a cast of 200 amateurs for Hopper North. And I said, said, well, why didn't we... And and that had made me think, you know, that that was an amazing experience. But what would it be like if they were telling their own story, if it wasn't a story about New York? But what if a town was telling its own story and had written its own music? What would that be like? And so I said to Glenn, well, why don't we just take over a town? You know, like we could... Hastings. some, I don't know, I, Hastings was probably not my idea, but the, so, we, so the first community opera was in the ballroom at the end of Hastings Pier with Wonderful. about 200 people in the cast, of whom there were five professional singers and five professional instrumentalists. Mm-hmm. There was a local symphony orchestra, the local uh, boys brigade uh, playing bugles. There was a yodeling harmonica player. And I just wrote for whoever wanted to be in the show. Wow. And, and I'm not saying it was a great piece, but it was a great experience for everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's a social experience as much as, yeah, indeed. as you know, the musical dramatic experience uh, and just everyone uh, finding out what it is that they can achieve together in, and that in numbers you can achieve things that on your own you know you might not have a great voice individually but when you're part of a big chorus you can make this incredibly powerful sound Absolutely. Um, and so that led on to another community opera in Ashford and then another one in Peterborough and it was after the third of these that uh, Anthony Whitworth-Jones who was running Glyndebourne then mm took me to lunch and said, would you be interested in writing an opera for Glyndebourne? We um, love lunches like that. <laughs> this could not have gone better. <laughs> and I immediately knew that I wanted to write a comedy. And, uh, and I said, in fact, I said, uh, I want to write a Figaro for the 90s. Yeah. Which is, of course, who's not going to want that? Yeah. But also, yeah. you can't. I mean, uh, it's <laughs> because I'm not Mozart. And because <laughs> stories don't work like that anymore. And things yeah. that were the than the you know the grain in the oyster shell um for mozart uh you know centuries later other things animate stories but thinking about mozart uh comedic action and actually cozy is sort of is part of that you know couples end up mismatched they end up with the wrong person was somewhere in our minds when i was talking to april de angelis um, about flight, and I knew I wanted to work with April because she makes me laugh, and um, so, and we'd already we'd written two micro operas together already, uh, mm. so we had form, and um, so we we had these conversations, and and then when she discovered the refugee living in Charles de Gaulle Airport, I thought, well, that's it, that's it. Yeah. you know the sound, the place is amazing, is is you know is it's intriguing, his predicament was extraordinary. Um, but there was also just the thought of what's it going to sound like when a plane takes off, and I I want to hear this piece. It's one of the great moments, that Jonathan. <laughs> just one of the great moments, really. Okay, goosebumps thinking about it now. It was very exciting, and so that then that took over um, the idea of the airport, the idea of being trapped in a kind of limbo between worlds. Uh, what's it like to you know as a as a to be a refugee who's not allowed into the country but is not sent home? Yeah. Um, but those other stories, comedies about couples ending up with the wrong people were still floating around and they sort of crystallised around this central figure of the refugee. Yeah. Uh, and of course, I had no idea then. I was just sort of following my nose and we were following our instincts and just 
finding out what would be exciting. And it was an incredibly um, open-minded commission and Glyndebourne, I thought, were extraordinarily trusting. I didn't realise then actually how extraordinary that is to say it can be anything you like. Yeah, uh, yes. And then when I said, well, we want to do the thing about the refugee and Anthony was saying, and, and you think that's going to be a comedy? Um, <laughs> and I was really sure that it was, but it was a long time before you could definitely say that that was true. Um, and all, I suppose all I was ever thinking about was the first night, imagining this event. I had no idea then that 20 years later there would still be productions, um, that it would have a, the life that it's had. And continuing to, I mean, let's, let's scroll on a bit, but keeping on the same subject. So in, in 2015, you and I had known each other for quite a few years at that point, um, a long time in fact, but um, I came to you and said, we'd really like to do flight at our place. And it was incredibly exciting for me because A, I've loved that piece for so long, um, but also, um, you know, I don't tend to work with too many composers that are alive. So it was, uh, it was, it was a strange thing for us anyway. Um, undiscovered composers from uh, the early 20th century maybe but this was just a real thrill and um, we worked on that together and with a great team with Brad Cohen conducting and Stephen Barlow directing um, and just created one of the things I'm most proud of about OHP's output uh, ever actually it's right up there at the top the very very top um, because you've seen it all around the world was it strange coming to see it back in back in your hometown, back in London again, and seeing it like that, because it was incredibly exciting for us. But what was it like for you seeing it, you know, in London again, really? Oh, do you know, um, I mean, it was so thrilling in so many ways. Uh, it obviously is incredibly gratifying to just be able to get on the tube to go to see <laughs> your own opera. Um, it, was, it was also nearly 20 years already since the premiere. Yeah. Um, and so it was just, it was fascinating to see, to see it come to life and feel more topical. Oh, it really it was, yeah. yeah. Um, and in fact, of course, during the, the run, there was this amazing thing that the tragic event that the refugee sings about at the end of the opera happened again. Happened again during the run, absolutely. Yeah, which is, I think, made it actually quite difficult for Jamie Lang, the refugee, to, to perform. It was, um, yeah. Yeah, it was very shocking. But... By, by that point, refugees were much more in our minds. Yeah. Um, but uh, and so so we were sort of more sensitised to the to the issue in a way. Uh, so that that was fascinating. It was also, I mean, there were so many things. Um, I I guess the, the, when Glyndebourne originally commissioned the piece, if I'd insisted there had to be a chorus, they would probably have they would have managed it. But they would clearly prefer that I would could do without because of what else was in the season that year. Yeah. And and that suited me um, because I'd written for these big community choruses. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I hadn't had was a chance to write intricate ensembles for yeah. up to 10 professional singers. So that was yeah. um, that was a big thing. Uh, so I'd, I'd never seen it with more than 10 people on stage, but Stephen Barlow um, filled out the action. So suddenly there would be lots of travellers coming through and, yeah. um, and it felt incredibly real. And there were... I think there were two lift doors, weren't there? I think in the original Glyndebourne production, there was probably one set. And so it was the airports got bigger, um, but it, still, it, it only added to it. Uh, so it was, just, it was fantastic to see a new vision of it, which was, you know, different, but every bit as good as the Richard Jones's, uh, you know, stunning. Yeah, Richard did a great job. It was a very, there were very um, uh, 
great company, that original company as well, because so many of the original artists came to to see ours, you know, uh, nearly 20 years later. And I remember the conductor David Parry being incredibly generous to me on the opening night saying, you know, the time had given it more space and, and the, you, we could make more of it now than them, just because, as you say, there was more knowledge about the refugees and what people were going through. And it just, the time had added this lovely perspective to it. And I think that um, so many of the original, I took a load of photos of your, your original cast with our artists that were doing it. And it was just a great camaraderie because, you know, relatively few people in this country have played those roles. So there was a real affinity between, between the artists of different, of different generations. And I think that um, it was incredibly exciting, almost certain, well, I always say this, without any question, the, the highlight of my career that week, because we opened in that season, we opened the, um, the Tritico on the Tuesday and the Flight on the Friday. Both shows got these great collection of five-star reviews from everyone. It was like, it's not bad. It's not a bad week. We're enjoying this. Um, and, and I don't think I've ever, um, I often say this as well, I don't think I've ever had an opening night party where everyone was in the party afterwards, because it is a relatively small cast, all just completely confident that it didn't matter what anyone said. We just knew that it had been a great job. Everyone was completely serene and relaxed and was like yeah we've, we've done that and i think stephen's vision for it which then you know we took to scottish opera uh, 18 months or so later uh was just lovely to see it again and um you know we had some projections on that as well which came in very late because i'd said to stephen i'll get him some projections but we just couldn't put them off until very late in the day but we we, we did get there and uh, and it and they really were so i'm so yeah. proud of that production yeah, they, they add real scale to it. And, and yeah. uh, that, that plane arriving, is, uh, it was really, really powerful. Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was great. So it was such a strong cast. I mean, that was, uh, you know, you did me such a huge favour uh, by putting <laughs> wonderful singers, several of whom also uh, went to Scotland. And, yeah. I mean, you know, who was singing Bill, I had previously seen him singing Peter Grimes. It was the idea that you would cast at that strength. Yeah, I think that's the thing. And I think that when we've done, you know, with Jenny at the top, you know, the controller going, I remember asking you about the role of the controller when we were just having tea before, a year or so before, and you said you'd written it stratospherically high, which was the thing that it is, but it's just a great phrase. And when Jenny was doing it, and as you say, we had Jeff Lloyd Roberts and um, Vicky Simmons was great as the Minx woman with Nick as her husband. It's just, it was one of the happiest times in my career and life that I loved, I loved that show. It's just a gorgeous piece of work to work on and real camaraderie on it as well. Um, that, so that, that was a lovely time. Uh, let's move on. I'm going to come back to that in a bit, but um, you've already mentioned in, in your building up to flight, but you've also, as well as having these um, fantastically successful operas like flight, it, you've carried on with the community operas as well. You've expanded those with Tobias and the Angel, Life is a Dream. That, that stayed with you as something that you do and do on such a large scale with community chorus as well. Is that a really tough thing to do? It's just so rewarding. I mean, it is, it can be exhausting. And I, uh, the, particularly the way I, when I started out doing it, um, the first three community operas, in fact, the first four, um, were all written in, in, with a, in a devising process so that I would work with large groups from the community to make the songs that they were going to sing. Yeah. Um, and, and then the first three I also conducted. So I was, you know, while I was still trying to finish the score, I was cycling to all the different parts of the town where, 
people were about to start their rehearsals. Uh, and so for the first three, I think I was always flat on my back for a couple of months after <laughs> the community opera happened. Um, but then later on, I realised that actually I could let experts do the conducting. And um, so Stuart Stratford conducted the uh, community opera for the Hackney Empire. Yeah. Um, and I also realised by the time I wrote Tobias and the Angel, that having gone through this process of co-devising pieces or co-creating uh, repertoire with the performers, I now had that sound in my head or I had a very, you know, hu huge uh, range of possibilities of what I knew that people, ordinary people, untrained people could, might respond to or might be able to remember. What, yeah. And I gave me a sense of also what would be a stretch, but an exciting stretch and what would be, you know, something that's unachievable. And I didn't always get it right because I, my third community opera, I can remember we spent, we were still working on the opening chorus, like in the third month of rehearsals with the opening coming very soon. It's like, oh my God, we've got a lot more music to learn. It's just, I wrote something a bit too hard at the beginning. Right. Um, but you know, that, that's all learning. And, and uh, so, but it's, it's, it's always an interesting the, the new challenge. I mean, this summer is not exactly an opera, it's, it's a sort of somewhat operatic piece that I wrote for the Lincoln Centre for a thousand amateur voices, mm -hmm. uh, which would have been performed in August. Now it'll be next year at the earliest. Okay. Um, but just imagining what can they do? It's, it's fascinating because it's, it's quite different from imagining, um, I, you sort of know with a professional singer, if I can imagine it, they can probably do it. Yeah, yeah, okay. I that can hear my sense. ear, they can do it. But uh, with amateurs, it's another leap. But it's just, you end up, you then feel so useful and you feel like, uh, because when it goes well, you're in a position to give this larger number of people an experience that they'd never dreamed of. And it is, it is that as well. It's, it's their enjoyment in taking part as well as the, as the finished products as well. You know, they really love taking part in that, and especially on a premiere. Yeah, really, it's most of all, it's for the performers. And but because they have such a, a, an exciting time and because they're so thrilled to be given this opportunity to play that they never, you know, they norm normally don't get to do. Um, that's what the audience gets. They get all of that energy. Yeah. yeah. So then the audience experience is sort of proportionately, you know, it's different, but it's, it's exciting. Completely agree. And carrying on that, you mentioned about um, Simon Rattle earlier on, uh, but also looking up on the uh, the monster in the maze another one of your pieces um is that right that the premiere was rattle again and with the lso the berlin phil as well yeah so the simon rattle conducted the first three productions which were in almost as many weeks uh in three languages uh <laughs> which is uh, you know which was a great it was a very is a generous thing to do um but it's also it's a comes out of belief he he wanted to commission new work as a sort of parting gift for the Berlin Philharmonic. Right. Uh, and the, the London Symphony Orchestra came in on that and the Aix Festival. And so it opened in Berlin um, in a semi-staged version. So the, the orchestra and the performers are all on stage together. Right. Uh, and it, we worked in the same way at the Barbican. Um, and then in the Aix en Provence Festival, they did a fully staged production. There were 300 people on stage, uh, of whom there were three professional singers and all <laughs> of the rest were, uh, and there were parts there's the, in fact, the biggest part is for the teenagers. Right. Um, they're in the centre of the story. Uh, there's young children, their younger brothers and sisters that they leave behind when they're sent off to Crete from Athens. Mm -hmm. um, and there's the parents who don't want to see them go, who then turn into this bloodthirsty chorus in, in Crete, uh, mm -hmm. waiting to see them be slaughtered by the Minotaur. Right. Um, so, so in a way, it's 
possible for a whole family to be involved as performers. Yeah. The parents are going to be the adults and the teenagers. Yeah, yeah, you know. indeed. Um, and of course, as you've mentioned, that means also that then the rest of the family will turn up to the performance. <laughs> we all love that. <laughs> and, uh, and, in, and in the pit, the orchestra is half professionals. I think it's about 20, 21 uh, players from the symphony orchestra. And the other half, a similar number, is youth orchestra players. Right. You're young. In Berlin, they were very young. And uh, Simon Rattle's 10-year-old son was playing double bass. Oh, really? uh, and some of the horn players seem to be smaller than their instruments. Um, but uh, in, in the Barbican, it was the musicians from the Guildhall who joined the LSO. Right. So there's this mentoring relationship that you see built in, in, in the orchestra. And yeah. the first flute is the principal and the second flute who's playing, you know, just a little bit lower, but very similar things. How wonderful. Is, is, is the amateur. And, and similarly, the, the professional singers, you know, they inspire the community cast. But the community cast's excitement reminds the professionals why they wanted to do it in the first place. They, it, it, so it's a sort of win-win. That uh, no, perfect. Chemistry. It sounds brilliant. But I think all of that is good, and so many, of the, so much of the work you've done has encouraged people to be involved in art and, and music. And it's just a real inspiration, as you say, that people can get to take part in that. And there's real excitement. Um, when people do on a, on a different level because it wasn't one of the community operas but you mentioned it a little while ago when we had the chorus in on um, flights Stephen and I brought a chorus in that was great because it was a lot of actors that had never been in an opera before now they were just young professionals they were just graduates coming out of college but they were just thrilled to be in an opera and it was a really lovely thing seeing them get so excited about the music and being around it it was a really it was a really great feeling um, We'll move on because I'm, I'm, it's so interesting hearing you talk about so many of these things that it's just so great to do. Um, Pinocchio for, with Opera North, um, directed by our mutual friend Martin Duncan. What a what a show that is! Was that something? Was, did Opera North have come to you with um, suggesting that piece, or was that your suggestion that piece? Actually, that was my idea. And David Parry, the conductor, um, I think was already working quite a lot with Opera North, with whom I already had a relationship as well. Yeah. But I think he particularly mentioned it to them. So essentially, we pitched it to yeah. the company. It was something that uh, Alison Middleton and I had been talking about for a while. I, I think I remember staying with uh, friends, or staying in a friend's house um, in Lucca mm -hmm. and going to not so far away, Collodi where Carlo Collodi came from, who wrote Pinocchio. And in, there is a Parco di Pinocchio, uh, where you can walk through the story, which we did. I don't know, it's possible that that was actually the beginning of it all, um, because, it, but it just, it awakened the excitement that I'd had about the story as a child. And what I'd had as a child, I grew up without television. We had television yeah. for one year in 1969, so that my grandmother could watch the moon landing. And then, and then she died and we sent it back. So that, I didn't see so many films growing up, uh, whereas many people would encounter the Disney Pinocchio first. Yeah. Uh, I, it must have been very abridged, but it had all of the episodes in it, right. uh, the, the picture book that I remembered. And so walking through the Parco di Pinocchio, uh, it all came flooding back and it was, you know, the six rabbits coming in with a coffin. Uh, it was, it was such, they're such strong images and such bizarre yeah. Yeah. images. And it seemed to be, it was just crying out to be made into an opera. Uh, really for us, I just, it was a show we wanted to see. Yeah. As uh, I think I've said to you once before, I'd, I'd always just try to write myself a good night out. 
Um, it's a great line. It's a great line. And, and, and what I'm, I'm really refreshing to hear because you, you, I know that you really mean that, but writing this sort of show that you like is, is a really great thing to say, I think. It's lovely. Yeah, well, and if I don't, who's going to do it? So, uh, but I, so I wasn't really thinking about the children at that point. It wasn't as uh, philanthropic as you might imagine. I was, <laughs> I was really thinking about me, first of all. Um, <laughs> I really wanted to see it. But then quite soon after, I thought, but of course, this would be a great opera to bring a family to. And I thought, how many of those are there? And I thought, actually, this is a small repertoire, you know, Hansel and Gretel, most famously. And after that, what? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've seen children having a great time at the Cunning Little Vixen, you know, particularly when the, the little vixens come on. Yeah. I mean, the little foxes. Uh, in, in the right production of the magic flute. You know, but it's not a huge repertoire. Yeah, indeed. Um, it's certainly main house repertoire, you know, main stage repertoire with, with, uh, with full symphony orchestra. Yeah. Um, but I just thought, would that be a brilliant? Um, and I also thought people will come to it. You know, people like Pinocchio. Great name, a, lot yeah. of, a lot of people don't realize that what the real story is yeah. they think it's a bit sweeter and then when it turns out that Pinocchio nearly dies five times and that mm -hmm. the cricket is squished with a mallet in the opening scene yeah it's, it's a it's darker than well, it's darker than Disney absolutely and also but you, you you and Alistair did such a great job on that and once again Vicky Simmons as Pinocchio yeah. um great actor singer Vicky yes and but do you know that that was the first role that she ever played on stage was it really? I didn't know that. She played Pinocchio in a, right. in a, in a theatre production. Yeah. So she, you, it was really the role that she was born to play. <laughs> How brilliant. Um, we're going to rush on a bit. I'm sorry, John. Um, Enchanted Pig, another one. Uh, the, uh, the Young Vic, is that right? Yes. Um, I was there one night when um, someone was ill and Stuart Stratford, who was conducted, started singing, which I've taken the mickey out of him about forever since. But... Um, he was, he was a brilliant conductor. He wouldn't have made it as a singer, but, um, but <laughs> it was such a great experience to be there to see him do that that night. I was very grateful that it was him and that he knew it so well. Yeah. And, that, and he, he gave a performance. It was John Rawnsley. Was um, it John? Right, okay. Yes, uh, who was, uh, and he and Nuala Willis, I'd written it, the show very much with them in, in mind because um, Nuala has created roles in, I think, seven operas of mine. Is she really? Um, yes, I, she's she's been quite a muse, and she's uh, wonderful, Nuala. Yeah, so she's the original older woman in flight, of course, but also yeah, she yeah. was uh, in the um, the first television opera I wrote uh, about the death of Princess Diana. Yeah, um, and and she'd been in two of the three community operas for Glyndebourne, and you know we we had a lot together. Um, but yes, yeah, so, uh, and Stuart, of course, is, he's a a wonderful collaborator and and sort of without eager but he just he, he the show was too important to let it you know f to let the audience go home empty-handed that night so he yeah, it was it was it was a great it was a great night but also i was going to say that there's a the uh, the wedding song and that is adele song i get sung so many times in auditions as well um, <laughs> yes. uh, when they when they say do you know this number we, yeah we do we do know that one um, but also with, um, and, but it's a great modern number to sing. It's very wordy, it's very melodic. It's, it's a great audition number. Um, and of course the other audition number is the uh, Minx Woman uh, aria, you know, whose bag is this, it always gets done. And uh, when, it's, when it's offered to me, I always accept it. And I, I wanna hear that one. Um, I'm not sure whether they know how well I know it at that point, <laughs> how well I'm judging it against other people, but, um, but we'll see. Um, 
Yeah, so we just mentioned it then, but you've done a few TV operas, the Diana, Death of the Princess, and also uh, the, uh, When She Died, and also uh, the Man on the Moon. That's right, yeah. Is that very different uh, thing to work in with TV? Um, in some respects, and I, I suppose I thought that the audience would not be opera lovers, they would be people who were interested in the story. And, and that was particularly true with, uh, with When She Died, about Princess Diana. Uh, that was commissioned by Channel 4 and it had some, uh, it had a co-producer in the States and between the two uh, broadcasters, two and a half million people watched it. Right. To get right. that audience in a theatre, you know, you'd have to run a show, eight shows a week for several years at the Coliseum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's amazing. And that's not an opera audience. That was, pe but that was people who were so interested in Princess Diana, they even though it was an opera, they wanted to see it. <laughs> <laughs> but so therefore I didn't um, come at it guns blazing. I didn't start off with top C's. Mm -hmm. uh, it sort of crept up with people singing at its sort of speaking level and right. speaking speed and became more operatic as it went along until by the end uh, there was a, uh, a sort of elegy in which all of the voices of the solo characters are raised over the sound of a large chorus, which is the chorus of people on the funeral path uh, right. singing a lament for, yeah. for Princess Diana. So it became sort of fully operatic only, only right. at the end. Okay. Uh, but it was, it, was, it was fascinating because it, um, I suppose for me, everyday life is operatic, modern life is operatic. And, uh, and anyone's story, if you're inside it, your story is, is operatic. Um, oh, so it's important to me that, that, although I also like telling stories of long ago and far away, yeah, like Pinocchio or the Enchanted Pig. Um, having something that's grounded in a contemporary reality, it's important for me to do that alongside those those other pieces um, whenever I can, because I I like because I think there is still you know there's so much prejudice about opera. People still think you still hear people talking about the show in over till the fat lady sings, and you think yeah, uh, I I want you to know that they're not all in wigs. You don't have to have a horned helmet. <laughs> And it can be thrilling, yeah, and yeah, funny also, which is yeah. not something that people particularly think of. Indeed, indeed, in, in, uh, that's a very good point. And people, um, w a lot of people, um, don't like, or they say they don't want to go to more contemporary pieces just because they don't think that that exists. But then you get them in the theatre and they see your pieces or work of Mark Anthony Turnage or, or you know, you know contemporary composers and people really do enjoy it when they're there but it's it's the mental leap to get them into the theater in the first place so we've run out of time now it's been amazing speaking to you it's just a, it's just such a varied career and you keep pushing boundaries and you keep writing these uh, amazing new works and uh, it's a thrill for us all to be involved i mean um you know it's it's it'd be nice to work uh, together again soon i think you know we're talking about that we're trying to work together i think can, is that as far as we can say at the moment? Well, I think, yeah, we definitely want to make a new piece. I think we could say that we're, we're also hoping to reach out to an audience that's notoriously hard to capture, yeah. which is the young adult audience. Yeah. I think um, that's a good thing to say. Yeah, yeah. I think that's <laughs> but um, we'll, be, we'll be in touch with everyone about that if we can make it happen. But it's certainly something that I, um, I've loved and I'm and I, talking to you about and trying to make work. And I think that there's a real, um, even with the, the desolation that our uh, the immediate outlook on our business industry is looking at the moment there's always opportunities from certain things and I think that you know it's down to you and I and the rest of our colleagues to create new things to get audiences in that but not 
trying to downplay to them or dumb down to them, but just to create real pieces of work that they actually all want to come to. Yeah, yeah. I can't wait to do that. I can't wait to do that. Okay, Jonathan, thanks so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure to see you. As I say, fly, um, my um, working on fly was absolutely one of the highlights of my career, and I've loved, uh, I've loved getting to know you over these last 15 or 16 years or whatever. So, Jonathan Dove, thank you so much. Thank you, James. You have been listening to From the Producer's Office, a series of informal podcasts with James Clutton. For more information on Opera Holland Park, please visit www.operahollandpark.com.